study sheet. Man, it, it sure is good to see everybody this morning. I knew we had a lot of people on vacation, but you know what? We got some people that aren't on vacation too, and so I'm anxious for, uh, to hear what the Lord has for us this morning. It's kind of wild. I realized last night it's officially been one year since me and Corey traded places this Sunday, so that's that's kind of wild. What a, what a year it's been. And man, I, I just want you to know, I, I, I thank God for you. I pray for you every day. And man, I'm thankful for where we've all been together so far. And I just can't wait to see where God is going to continue to lead us in the future. Uh, but as we begin, let's, let's, let's pray as we get started. Father, we love you and we are coming before you and and we need you, God, because I, I, I've got nothing to say. You have everything to say, God, and our, our desire and our hope this morning is to make much of you and your name and your word and your truth for me to get out of the way so that your word can have free course and be glorified. And, Father, this morning we want to hear from you. God, I pray that the hearts in this room would be soft and they'd be receptive to your word and to what you have for us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're in a verse-by-verse -verse study right now of the book of 1 Thessalonians, as many of you know, and we've been studying this book for about 10 months now, and, and you say, how can you be in one book of the Bible that only has five chapters for 10 months, and you're still going, right? How, how is that possible? And, and the reason is, is because when you study the Bible and you apply what 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13 teaches us, and you compare spiritual things with spiritual things, or in other words, we could say you compare Scripture with Scripture, it's amazing what all God can reveal to you out of just this simple little verse, sometimes just a few words, what all he's actually saying. And it's amazing how much meat is actually on the bone of just the short phrase that we studied last week, which, which was simply, and be at peace among yourselves. And we spent a whole week talking about that. And, and, and by comparing Scripture with Scripture, what happens is, is that we begin to understand the deeper things of God. That's the way He designed it. But it also accomplishes something else that's, that's very important for us to, to understand. It makes it so that the Bible is the ultimate source of truth. You understand that? The, the Bible is a self-defining book. It defines itself when you compare it with itself. But when you go outside of the Bible to define what's inside of the Bible, then what's the ultimate source of truth? It's whatever's outside of the Bible. And that's going to get us into trouble real quick. The Bible is either our final authority, or we're just all making stuff up as we go. What do you think? How about you? What do you, what do you think that means? What do you think that meant back in a language that no longer exists? What do you think that means? And so we're all just making stuff up as we go. And so last week we finished verse 13 of chapter 5, which was all about how we're to function together as a spiritual family. And one of the ways we're to do that, like I just mentioned, is to be at peace among ourselves. And this morning, we're going to be studying the next two verses of 1 Thessalonians 5, which also have to do with how we're to function with one another as a spiritual family. 
And in these verses, Paul continues laying out for us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit some specific ways that we're to handle specific people. And I think innately we all understand that general idea or, or principle. So, for example, let's say there was someone in your life that all of a sudden they're just super emotional, right? They're, you're talking to them one day and it, and, it, and it seems like out of nowhere they're just in tears at the most random times and, and maybe they're even a little short with you. And maybe they're impatient with you, right? And when people are that way, that, that starts to get annoying really quick. And they just kind of seem like all of a sudden they're a, they're a mess. In most cases, you'd probably be thinking, man, we, we may need to be getting this person some help. They, they seem unstable. Or maybe even I'm about to sit them down and give them a stern talking to because this is getting a little out of hand. And then later on, you, you, you find out that, that a few days before they acted like that, you hadn't heard it yet, but they'd lost a loved one. And understandably, they were struggling with that. If that was the case, you'd probably go from, I'm going to need to sit them down and talk to them about how they're acting to, you know, maybe instead of doing that, I should just love on them and encourage them. Maybe I'll send them a card and let them know I'm praying for them, right? You see, understanding who you're dealing with should naturally change our approach. Maybe there's another scenario, and there's a, there's a let's say, a 9- or 10-year-old that's misbehaving in the kids' classes. I'm sure that's never happened, but let's just say that it did. They're, they're wild, right? They're not obeying the way, the way they should. The teachers are understandably getting pretty frustrated, and they're not sure how to handle it. And, and, and then they find out that this kid has a really rough home life. His parents are never around. His dad's an alcoholic. And, and, and once you know that, not that you let the kids do whatever they want, but you might handle that just a little bit different now that you understand what you're dealing with. And I think we all innately understand that, that general idea, or, or at least we should. And what we're going to see this morning is that what we just described is actually not just common sense. It's a, it's a biblical principle that God wants us to have in our lives. And we're going to see how 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 actually lays this out for us in some detail and how God wants us to use discernment as we handle different situations and different people. We don't handle every situation and every person exactly the same way. Our approach to a specific person may need to be handled differently based on the situation. And I want us to go ahead and read the two verses that we'll be studying this morning where we see this. We find this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 14 and 15. And here's what it says. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men, see that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. So that's how the body of Christ is to function together, and that's how we're to behave toward one another and what we see in verse 14 is is that there are different ways that we come alongside a brother or sister based on whether they're unruly or whether they're feeble-minded or whether they're weak and so we need to understand which one's which so that we know how to handle each of them the right way because 
if they're unruly, then, man, we, we, should, we should warn them. If they're feeble-minded, then we should comfort them. And if they're weak, then we should support them. And so first, let's look at the first part of verse 14. And, and we see that number one on your study sheet, we see that we're commanded to warn the unruly. So we're commanded to warn the unruly. So we're talking about the way that we're to function together as a church family and as the body of Christ. And, and it's clear we're to handle different people in different ways based on what their struggle is. And, and so first, let's dive deeper into the struggle, and then we'll dive deeper into as to how to respond to the struggle. And, and in this particular case, the struggle or the, or the sin that we're talking about is being unruly. And so let's talk about what that what that is exactly, right? If someone is unruly, they're unable to be ruled. <laughs> they're refusing to listen to who has the rule or the authority. They're out of control. We could say they're out of rank and they don't listen to authority. Right. And, and, and I know as we grow up, Everybody thinks that being rebellious and unruly is cool, right? If there's one way you could be, you didn't have to be anything at my school other than unruly, and that could pave a path for you to be cool. That was how, that's how it was. No, no, the nobody's going to tell me anything. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. I'm a rebel without a cause. And if anyone has a problem with it, they can go kick rocks. That's the G-rated version of something, isn't it? <laughs> I get it. The problem is that's the opposite of how the Creator designed us to function. Because like we talked about on Father's Day from Ephesians 6.1, when you're a child, you're to obey your parents. When you're a wife, according to Colossians 3.18, you're to submit to your husband. In matters that pertain to the church, according to Hebrews 13, 17, you're to obey the leadership of the church that has the rule over you. When you're at work, according to Colossians 3, 22, you're to obey your boss. And so this thing of rule or this thing of authority and not behaving unruly, man, it shows up all over the place because everywhere we turn, there's someone else that has the rule over us. And it's so important that we all understand authority because even if you make it all the way to the top and you're the leader of the free world, you still have an authority because you're going to answer to God. Let me assure you, they're going to answer to God for a lot. And so it's vital that we aren't unruly because everywhere we turn, there's someone that has the rule that we're to obey or to submit to. And so even if you reach the top, you still answer to God. And of course, we'll, we'll all answer. To God. And, and so being unruly is, is refusing to be ruled by those that God has placed in authority, or it's simply being unruly towards the truths of how we're to conduct ourselves as believers that's been laid out in our final authority, God's Word. And, and like I mentioned, I, I, I just pushed this issue of obedience and authority in regards to our kids on Father's Day. And and I wanted to emphasize that because one of the reasons that it's so important for our kids to understand authority and understand consequences to their actions from an early age 
is because there will never be a time in their lives where they don't have an authority. <laughs> Even if they're at a place where they essentially answer to no one but God, they're still answering to somebody. Even if they're in a place where as adults they essentially answer to no one, they'll answer to God. And if they're unruly with the authority when it's their parents, they're going to be unruly with the authority when it's God. And so they'll be unruly adults. And, and, and there are a lot of adults out there that, that even, though they're, even though they're saved and they're a part of a local New Testament church, their behavior is unruly because their behavior is in disobedience to the word of God, our final authority. And so when someone is unruly, keep, keep in mind, God is the one that makes the rules and all the authority structures that we just mentioned a minute ago. So God is the one that's ultimately being sinned against. These are, these are folks that, that have an, an evident area or areas in their lives where they are rebelling against and being unruly towards Christ's lordship as the authority in their lives. In Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, Jesus asks this monumental question that I'm certain he would love to ask countless believers today when he said, And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? In other words, it's like Jesus is saying, you, you keep using this word Lord. I don't think you know what it means. You understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? Because what it means is, is that he has the rule in your life. That's what salvation is supposed to be about. Jesus becomes the Lord of your life. That's why Romans 10, 9, it says that we're to call on the Lord Jesus to be saved. And you see Philippians 2, 11, it teaches us that every tongue will eventually confess that Jesus is Lord. Everyone that has ever lived will confess that fact. Every atheist, every Satanist, every Buddhist, every Muslim will eventually confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone will. It's just a matter of whether or not we will in this life or we will do it after it's already too late in the next life. Because Jesus Christ is Lord, that's the truth, whether someone is willing to admit it or not. So it's a matter of, will we cry out to him as Lord in this life, and after we've cried out to him as Lord as to be saved, will we make that a practical reality in our lives? Jesus Christ is Lord, that, that's the cold hard facts, but will our lives actually reflect that he is Lord? That's the question. Will we allow him to rule and call the shots as he sits on the throne of our lives? Or are we going to spend our lives fighting him for the throne? And, and many won't submit to Christ's rule. And so they go round and round on the carousel of sin. And so, our and so in our passage in 1 Thessalonians 5, God lays out for us how we're to handle someone like that. Someone that's unruly. And as you can imagine by what we've already seen, there are a lot of ways that being unruly can manifest itself. Lots of ways. But, but it's interesting because this word unruly is only used three, 
other times in our Bibles. And one of those is, is addressing the qualifications for an elder and what should not be characteristic of an elder's children. But the other two, interestingly enough, both have to do with what comes out of someone's mouth. Them being unruly is, is, isn't so much connected to what they do, it's connected to what they say. And, and we're going to look at one of those instances that we find in James chapter 3. In James chapter 3, pick up with me in verse 8. Here's what it says. But the tongue can no man tame. It is in, here it is, unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either of vine figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. And I want us to make sure we see and I want us to make sure that we understand that one of the most common ways that people demonstrate being unruly is with their tongue. It's with an untamed or unruly tongue that's described as unruly and evil and full of deadly poison. And I'd imagine that most of us not only understand this truth biblically, but we understand it experientially. And God is saying, this ought not so to be. He says, how is it possible that from the same tongue we're singing praises to God one minute, and the next minute we're railing on our brother or sister who for the record was made in the similitude of God? How is it possible that these loving words and these hateful words come from the same fountain or come from the same well. You don't get two different flavors out of the same fountain or the same well. That's not how it works. That's not how a tree or a vine works. You don't get multiple types of fruit from the same tree. So God says, how is it that the same tongue is blessing God one minute and cursing their brother or sister the next? That's a contaminated well. And what's so concerning about those that are unruly with their tongues is the fact that the tongue has so much power. So much power. Proverbs 18.21 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Oh yes, there's so much good we can do with the power of our tongues or with the power of our words. But on the other hand, there's, there's so much bad we can do and so much evil we can bring with the power of our words. We've got to remember our, our words have power. And yeah, sometimes maybe some of us need to get thicker skin. That is, that is true, especially in modern times. That is very true. But on the other hand, some of us need to watch what we say and not be so loose with our words because those words have power. We were just in James 3.8, but earlier in the chapter in James 3.3, 3, the power of the tongue is described like this. Would you look at it? Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so, the tongue is a little member 
and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter of little fire kindleth, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. James says that that small little bit, that small little bridle that goes in a horse's mouth, turns that big old horse's whole body. These huge ships, they've got this small helm or this, this small rudder. That little thing makes that big old ship turn wherever it wants. And the tongue is the same way. Though the tongue is, is little, unless you're Gene Simmons, the, though, though the tongue is, is little, it has immense power. That, that second half of verse 5 says how, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. It's just like a forest fire, isn't it? A forest fire often starts from something as small as a little spark. It can start from the spark of a cigarette. It can start from the spark coming off of a train track. And something that's so little, once it's finished, causes a whole lot of destruction. And so though unruliness can manifest itself in many ways, being unruly with our tongue is one of the primary ways that it manifests itself. So, so that gives us a good idea of, of what being unruly looks like. But now let's look at what this thing of warning them is all about. Verse 14 says we're to warn them that are unruly. So we're to warn them or we're to caution these people. And, and I think it goes without saying, but, it, but I think it's safe to say that the idea here is not that every member form a line and take their crack at warning whoever it is that's unruly. Let's all line up after church and everybody take turns. No, I, I don't think that that's what it's, the Bible's getting at here. There is a right time, a right place, and oftentimes a right person or right people to do this. And one of the things that, that makes someone the right person to warn the unruly has to do with the heart of the person from whom the warning is coming. Here's what I mean. When Paul was writing to warn the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4.14, listen to where his heart was as he warned them. He said, I, I write not these things to shame you, but as beloved sons I, I warn you. For though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, ye have not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. You see, Paul's approach in his example to us when warning someone is for the warning to not come from a place that's, that's wanting to shame somebody or, or wanting to condemn them or wanting to get something off your chest that's been bothering you for a while. No, it's to warn them like a father would warn a beloved son. If we're going to warn someone that's unruly, that's the heart that's behind it. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 28, Paul says, Here's what the posture of your heart should be when warning someone. It says this, Whom we preach, talking about preaching Jesus, Whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. What's the purpose of warning people? It's for the purpose of seeing them perfect and complete and conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That's the motive and heart behind it. It is out of love and it's out of concern. 
This thing of warning comes up again in Acts chapter 20 and verse 31. And here's what it says. It says, therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years, I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. He warned them with tears. And you can see the love and the concern that's behind this warning that's being given. And each time you see someone being warned about something in the Bible, this is consistently the heart and the spirit that's behind it all. That's the motivation behind warning someone. You're not warning them like, let me tell you something, I'm warning you. (laughs) You do that again and me and you are going to have us a problem. You're going to figure out that I'm about that life. (laughs) Catch me outside. You know, no, no, we're, we're, <laughs> we're, not, <laughs> we're not warning them to shame them, right? We're warning them like a father warns his beloved son. We're warning them because we want to see him perfect and complete and mature spiritually. And we're warning them from such a place of love and concern that it may even bring us to tears. And if that's not the heart, in the spirit that you're coming from, even though there may be somebody in the body that needs to be warned for being unruly, if that's not the heart and the spirit that it's coming from, then you're probably not the person that needs to be doing it. The person is going to need to be someone that can come in the spirit of love and concern in order to see them mature in their relationship with Christ. If that's not our heart, then we should sit this one out and leave it to someone else. And yes, just like we, we talked about last week, those, those conversations should be able to be had and us finish that conversation and still be at peace among ourselves. Now, with that being said, there, there does come a place in, in, in where unruliness has actually reached a point where it is necessary to take action beyond just warning them. In, in fact, in Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, he describes this exact situation and in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. And here's what Paul says. He says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. Yeah, we're, we're all to be at peace, but it's possible for a brother or sister to walk disorderly or unruly to the extent It's time to distance yourself from them because they're giving God a bad name. It's not just that they were unruly or disorderly in an instance. It's that they're walking that way, it says. This is a part of their walk. This is now a consistent pattern in their life. And then a few verses later, Paul gives us some more detail as to how to handle this. He says in verse 14 of 2 Thessalonians 3, he says, If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Now stop right there. A few minutes ago, I I told you that the motivation behind warning in the Bible isn't to shame someone. That's what the verse said. But you see, when warnings aren't heeded and the behavior becomes your walk and the behavior becomes your lifestyle, there does reach a point where the actual motivation behind what God has called us to do is so that the person will be ashamed. That's the heart behind not keeping the company with them. But we also have to keep the next verse in mind 
as well. Verse 15. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Listen, we may need to distance ourselves from someone who's walking disorderly and unruly because we can't roll like that. But these people aren't our enemies. These are still our brothers and sisters. We can't forget that. We're still a family at the end of the day. And then would you look at the very next verse? In the midst of all this stuff that lends itself to nothing short of drama in our lives. Verse 16 says, Now the Lord of peace himself, now the Lord of peace himself, give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. In the midst of all, of, all this stuff, in the midst of all these challenges when dealing with brothers and sisters in Christ, Paul reminds them what we saw last week. He reminds them, don't forget about peace in the midst of all this. He reminds them about the call we have to be at peace among ourselves. And he, remind us, he reminds us of where that peace comes from. It comes from the Lord of peace. And then we get some insight into who it is that fits the description of a brother or sister that we're to distance ourselves, ourselves from. This is, these are some of the things that it could look like. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, here's what Paul writes to us. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. There's so many of them. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or idolater or railer or drunkard or extortioner with such and one know not to eat. So if you claim to be a believer in Jesus Christ and you're fornicating, covetous, idolater, railer, drunkard, extortioner, those are some people that you should probably begin to distance yourself from and not keep company with. They're not an enemy. They're still a part of the family. We're still to be at peace with them. But the, that's the, if, when that's the pattern of their lives, at some point we're to no longer warn the unruly. We're to keep our distance in hopes that it's a wake-up call and they get their life right with God. And so in the midst of all this, we've got to be aware that, that, that it takes a lot of discernment to know how to handle all of these situations that I described. And so as a church body, as we're, as we're navigating situations that potentially call for warning the unruly or potentially distancing ourselves from someone that walks disorderly, that claims to be a believer, I think we'd be very wise to apply James chapter 1 and verse 19 to our lives. Swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. When in doubt... <laughs> Follow that path. Slow down for a second. Allow the Spirit to provide direction as to who you're dealing with and how to handle it. And then the next way that we're to function with one another within our church family, according to 1 Thessalonians 5.14, is, is we're to, number two, comfort the feeble-minded. We're to comfort the feeble-minded. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, it tells us, that we're to comfort feeble-minded brothers and sisters. So this, this thing of being feeble-minded, if, if someone is feeble, of course it means that they're, they're weak or they, they lack strength. So if you're feeble-minded, this is someone that for whatever reason or, or whatever circumstances are potentially in their lives or even in their past, these are people that have 
along the way, they've become feeble-minded. Or, or, man, maybe they're just in a season of life where they're struggling with lacking strength and being weak mentally. This could be someone that just cannot shake worry. This could be someone that's constantly depressed. This could be someone that lives in fear. They're just always afraid. There's a lot of different ways that lacking strength mentally can, can manifest itself. And what we need to be sure to understand is, is that, listen, those aren't the people that you warn. We warn the unruly, but we, we comfort the feeble-minded. There's a specific way we handle people that are struggling in that way. It's, it's to comfort them. It, it's, it's to encourage them. It, it's, it's like if you've ever lifted weights with someone. It's been a long time for your boy. But if you've ever, if you've ever lifted weights with someone and they're, and they're spotting you while you're on the bench press, you've either done this or seen this, and you're about to run out of steam and you're like, yeah, I think I'm about to put this bar back on this rack because I feel the burn. But the guy spotting you says something like, come on, man, one more rep, you got it. Well, all of a sudden it's like this strength comes out of nowhere, right? And you're like, you know, and you surprise yourself because you get this one more rep, you know, you only had uh, 25 on each side, but you get, you got one, you got, <laughs> you got one more rep. And that's how, that's how God designed it. It's the same reason why in sports, there's this thing called home court or home field advantage. You hear him talk about that all the time. Well, why is that such an advantage? The court and the field are the same size. The field goal posts are in the same exact spot. The basketball hoop's the same exact height. So what, what, what's the deal? Well, the main reason is because whenever the athlete feels like they don't have anything left, they can't do it anymore, they have 90,000 people screaming, let's go, don't stop now, right? That's what, that's what happens. You see, God designed it that way so we'd comfort and encourage each other to keep going when we feel like we no longer can. Earlier in our study of 1 Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12, Paul, Silas, and Timothy describe how they comforted the Thessalonians in verse 11. And, and they describe why they comforted them in, in verse 12, or what the purpose was. And here's what it is starting in verse 11. It says, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. That's how they did it. This is why. That ye would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. And they set this example for us, showing us that they comforted them like a father does his children. They did it to help them become more like Christ and walk worthy of the God that will one day bring them into his kingdom. So what we begin to see is, is that the heart behind our approach to our brothers and sisters should be the same, whether they're unruly, feeble-minded, or weak, but it's that our, our, our approach should be different. We either warn, comfort, or support, depending on who we're dealing with. So that in this case, we need to comfort and encourage the feeble-minded or those that are lacking strength of mind. Instead of getting frustrated with them, we come alongside of them and we encourage them and we allow God to use us in their life. Because do you realize that one of the reasons that God gives us comfort when we need comfort is so that we'll extend comfort when someone else needs comfort? 
You understand that's one of the reasons he did that, according to 2 Corinthians 1.3? In 2 Corinthians 1.3, check out how, how Paul lays this out. It says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation. Why? That we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. God says, take the comfort I gave you and comfort some others with those same truths. That's part of the reason I comforted you. So, so we're to warn the unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, and then the next way that we're to function with one another is number three, we're to support the weak. We're to support the weak. <clears throat> and, so, and so again, it, it's important that we know who we're dealing with so we know how to handle them according to verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians 5. So, so being feeble-minded is lacking strength or weakness in someone's mind. But now this part of the verse is talking about being weak in a more broad sense it, it isn't limited to the mind they they could be weak in spirit weak in faith weak in hope and they just don't have the strength to do what needs to be done it's almost like in our physical families right if you've got a if you've got a toddler or or a young child in your house or maybe you have a a grandchild that's that age you quickly realize they need a lot of attention. It's not always that they're being unruly. It's just that when a toddler is in the house, they tend to be right in the mix, don't they? They always need something. They demand your attention because they're weak. In fact, when it gets quiet, it's actually worse. You know you're in trouble when it gets quiet. But they're, but they're just weak and they need attention and they, and they need some help. Or, or we could compare this to someone that's, that's been bedridden for a while, right? They haven't worked out their muscles, and they've gotten weak. And so when they go to stand for the first time in a while, they can barely stand. They don't have the strength to do what they need to do. They're feeble and frail, and I think you get the analogy. There are people like this in our churches in a spiritual sense. And there's a specific way that we're to handle people that fit that description. Many of us have been there at one point or another in our lives. And, and, and the way that verse 14 says to handle them is we're to support those people. We're to show them support. You support them. You do what a support is supposed to do. or You do what a support beam is supposed to do. You help hold them up, right? Isn't that what a support does? And when someone is weak and they can't support themselves, you show up as a support beam in their lives and you help prop them up. Romans 15.1 says that, that when we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. In other words, if we're strong and, and, and we're bearing the infirmities of someone that, that's weak, it means that we're helping to carry the load. We're there with them. We're there for them. We're, we're there to help them. I love the second part of this verse. It says, and not to please ourselves. In other words, just because you're strong doesn't mean you keep plugging away and you just leave everybody else in the dust. No, that's not how God designed his spiritual family to function. 
It means that because this isn't about us and about pleasing ourselves, that we go back and help the ones that are too weak to keep going and bring them along. If we're strong and we're plugging along and we're, we're growing in the Lord and we're getting where God wants us to go and we look around and those that are weaker aren't with us, then we need to go back and get them because they're part of the family and they need support. Maybe you've lived through similar circumstances as, as those that have struggled in the same way. Maybe the person you're bringing along is, the, is a person who is living some of the same things that you lived. And God's going to open up an opportunity for you to share with them what he taught you in the midst of your struggle and help bring them along. God's called us to support the weak. And, and, and so those are the ways that we're to handle the different types of people described in verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians 5. But that, listen, that, that takes some discernment. <laughs> it takes some consideration to know who it is exactly that you're dealing with because if they're unruly you warn them if they're feeble-minded you comfort them and if they're weak you support them we don't treat every situation the same way but then what we see next in our passage this morning is as though on one hand we need that discernment so that we know how to handle these specific situations and struggles there are some specific all-encompassing ways that we're to handle every person in every situation. And one of the ways that we're to handle every person in every situation is to be patient to everyone. Number four, be patient to everyone. That's what the end of 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says. Because when you're dealing with unruly people and feeble-minded people and weak people, you're going to need you a good dose of patience aren't you? Just dealing with people in general is going to take patience. So God says, you need to be patient with everybody, your brothers and sisters and, and everybody. And God wants us all to behave in ways, of course, that don't require everyone else to need so much patience, but there will always be people in situations that require patience no matter what. Haven't you needed patience before in your life? Have you ever been in a season of life where you were a handful? Maybe that season is summer of 2023. Have you ever had a season of life where you were unruly? Have you ever had a season of life where you were feeble-minded? Or, or maybe a season where you were weak? I have. And if you've needed patience too, then it really shouldn't be as hard as we make it to offer that patience to others because we've all been there and we've all needed it from someone. None of us were born or born again and were immediately mature. That's not how it worked for anybody. And we've all lived through these stages of growth physically and stages of growth spiritually. So as a spiritual family, we're to show each other patience wherever our brothers and sisters are in their process of spiritual growth. Hebrews 5, 2, it, it, it talks about the priests in the Old Testament. And it talks about them offering sacrifices on behalf of others and offering sacrifices on behalf of themselves. And here's what it says about those priests in Hebrews 5, 2. They can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, 
for that he himself also is compassed with infirmities. So just like this high priest making these sacrifices for everyone else, man, he should be able to show everyone compassion because he was going to have to offer sacrifices on behalf of his sorry self too. And what God says is as fellow strugglers together and as people that also need others to offer some compassion to us and some patience to us, we should be able to sympathize with others when they need compassion and patience. If we're going to function like a spiritual family and like a body, the body of Christ, then we're going to need to be patient with one another. And again, not only to each other, but to, to everyone else as well, to those that don't believe, knowing that others have had to be patient with us. And then there's one more thing that's important for us to see. It goes hand in hand with everything we've been talking about today and everything we talked about last week. And it's something we're to offer to everyone as well. And it's that we're to not render evil. Number five on your study sheet. Not render evil. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 says this. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good both among yourselves and to all men. You know what the most natural thing in the world is? Rendering evil for evil. It really, I mean, it really is. In other words, getting somebody back for what they did to you is in our blood. If, if they're ugly to us, man, we're, it's just ingrained in our flesh. We're going to be ugly back. It's human nature. I'm not going to let anybody say that to me or they're going to get an earful right back, brother. No one's going to do that to me or you better believe they'll have something coming right back. It's so natural that have you ever thought how they build this into everything that's on your television? Every movie or show, there's always the, that person that you love and there's always somebody messing with them. And there are times you can be watching a show for three seasons in they're making you want to see that good guy render evil for evil like nobody's business. And, and all they have to do to make you want to see that good guy render evil for evil to the bad guy is to have the bad guy keep doing evil to the good guy without getting payback. That's all they have to do. It's really as simple as that. It, it's not that hard because it's so natural for us to see, want to see these people that do wrong get payback. Isn't it, it's really not that genius how they, how they pull it off. As long as the bad guy's not getting payback, you're going to have all of us staring at that screen just anxiously anticipating when the beatdown is coming that that guy deserves. But as natural as that is for us, there's one big problem. God has never called us to render evil for evil to any man. Not even the ones that deserve it. Here's what we've been called to, according to Romans 12, 17. This is what we've been called to. It says in Romans 12, 17. There, or 19. Is there 17? Okay, that's okay. Listen as I read 17. I'll get to 19 in a minute. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If, verse 18, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. 
Yeah, there are times you have done as much as you could possibly do to be at peace, and the other party just won't have it. That is a scenario that's on the table, though I do fear we're too quick to rush to justification through this verse when we really haven't done all that we can on our end to be at peace. But it is on the table. But here's what I want to make sure you see from verse 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. You see, vengeance does have its place. It's just not with us. Vengeance doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. So when we interject, we're actually taking something that doesn't belong to us and taking it from God. And you know what we're actually doing? We are the ones that are being unruly. Well, I'm not going to let them think they can talk to me like that. If they're going to gossip about me, they're going to have another thing coming, buddy. God says, step aside, tough guy. I got this. God will take care of it how he decides and in his timing. And that means we get to just let go of it. Isn't that a beautiful thing? We don't have to hold on to avenging ourselves and getting in the last word. We're free. That's what freedom in the Bible is always talking about. We're free from being enslaved to junk like that. So we've got to let go of it and let God have it so we can be free of it. And listen, this is the way it's always been. Clear back in Leviticus 19.18, God tells Moses to tell the Israelites that thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. God has set it up like this from the very beginning. We're not to avenge ourselves. But according to 1 Thessalonians 5.15, there is something that we're supposed to do. You remember what it was? We're not to avenge ourselves. That's what we're not to do. But here's what we are to do. Ever follow that which is good. Don't render evil for evil, but ever follow that which is good. We, we looked at part of Romans 12 a second ago, but look at it again with me, starting in verse 19. Romans 12, 19, it says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. We read that a second ago, but we stopped there. Verse 20, Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. The solution to being treated by someone, the solution to being treated by someone in an evil manner is to overcome that evil with good. Otherwise, we might be overcome of the evil instead, and we end up in the same boat as the person that wronged us. That's what happens when we render evil for evil. We end up in the same boat as the one that we found so detestable. Or we can just let God deal with that, and we can do good to the one that wronged us. It reminds me of the story of Joseph. You, you remember how Joseph's brothers treated him? They treated him 
like trash, and they left him for dead in a pit. Meanwhile, Joseph doesn't die, and he ends up being sold to one of Pharaoh's officers in Egypt, Potiphar. And ultimately, Joseph works his way up to being the second in command in all of Egypt behind only Pharaoh. And because of this famine in the, that has come in the land, all these other countries are coming to Egypt, and they're trying to, to buy some food. And so like many others, Joseph's brothers, they, they show up to buy food. Now remember, they, they think he's dead. And so they're, they're talking to Joseph, and they, they don't even recognize him. And, and he eventually just comes out and tells them who he is. And, and, and if this was a movie, like we talked about earlier, at this point, they've got you so worked up at Joseph's brothers right now at this point, you can hardly see straight you're so mad at them. And you're like, yes, all right, this is the climax of the movie, this is where... You know, he's finally going to let these guys have it. This must be the part of the movie where he grabs them by the shirt and says, you thought you could throw me in a ditch and leave me for dead? Now I'm the second in command in Egypt. Look at me now. So no, I'm not going to sell you any food. We're going to take all of you out back, and we're going to throw you a shovel, let you guys dig your own pit, and you can sit there until you rot that's a movie that's kind of what you're waiting for aren't you i mean they kind of deserved it but that's not how this story ends because joseph understood that vengeance wasn't his place because you remember what he did for his brothers after they realized who he was his brothers are basically groveling at this point right they they realize how bad they messed up they re realize the predicament that they're now in and in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 18, here's how it lays out the story. It says, And his brethren, that's Joseph's brethren, and his brethren also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we be thy servants. In other words, we'll be your, we'll be your servants. We'll, we'll do anything, just please don't take vengeance on us. And check this out in verse 19. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not. For am I in the place of God? Joseph understood vengeance wasn't his place. Do you see that? It was God's place. And he also understood something I want to make sure all of us see this morning in verse 20. He says, but as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. You see how God used the evil way that Joseph was treated for good? That's the same thing God wants to do in our lives when we're treated evil by others. We have to understand that when we're treated like trash by others, though they may mean it for evil, God means it for good. God has a plan. God has a purpose for it. God is conforming you more into his image. He's, he, he's conforming you into his image, and he's positioning you to be more used of him. And look at verse 21. He's, Joseph says, Now therefore, fear ye not, I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them, and he spake kindly unto them. Instead of rendering evil for evil, Joseph left that to God. And what did he do in verse 21? 
He gave food to them and their families. He comforted his feeble-minded brothers. He was kind unto them. And instead of being overcome with that evil that he could have let rule his life, he overcame the evil with good. And that's exactly what God has called us to do with our brothers and sisters and with every man. I get it. All, all of these truths presented this morning, for some, it may be very far from how you have conducted yourself in your life thus far. Some of us have probably lacked the discernment to understand who we're dealing with when we're, when we're dealing with the problem of whether someone is unruly, feeble-minded, or, or weak, and, and not dealing with that properly has probably caused us problems in our lives. A lot of us have probably been a lot less than patient with people at times. And for some of us, when someone wrongs us, our immediate response has always been to render evil for evil. And, and, and overcoming evil with good is nowhere in the picture. And if that's the case for you, man, you are in great company. Right? The, I, I'd say that's probably most people on the planet. What I'm asking you, though, is now that you've been confronted with these truths from God's word, what are you going to do about it? Well, this is the way that I've always been, and so, you know, it's just, yeah. Man, I hope you don't do that. I hope you're here in this room because you want to grow in the Lord and you're not content with who you've always been when it falls short of God's standard in your life. And I do believe that's the heart of the majority of folks in this room. Let's, let's do some business with God before we leave this morning. Father, we love you. We thank you for the way that you have been so incredibly patient with us. We thank you, God, that you were gracious to us when we didn't deserve it. I pray, God, that we would apply the truths from your word this morning and we would understand it's not our place to render evil for evil to any man, God, that you will deal with that in your timing. We are out of rank or out of step when we begin to step in and do those things, God. You have called us to be patient, God. You have called us to, to follow that which is good, I pray, God, that that is what everyone in this room would do, God. Who cares how we've been in the past? Today is a day to move forward, God. May we not just come in here each week learning new truths and be content with walking out the door the same way we came in. God, I pray that wouldn't be the, I pray that would not be characteristic of Cali Harbin Baptist Church. And we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.